so in developing this sort of sermon testimony hybrid thing, I had the interesting experience of having listened to sermons my entire life, start to think about how sermons are developed in the first place. So I thought I would start by sharing some of that. When Pastor Devin... Pastor Danielle and Pastor Kevin uh, first asked me to speak today. My first thought was like, oh my gosh, I've never had an original thought in my life. I can't do this. Um, So I did what any good creative analytical high schooler would do, and I Googled it. So um, I found this pretty interesting 16-step WikiHow page (laughs) with pictures um, about how to give a sermon. Um, So I thought I would share some highlights with you said, once you are done preparing your sermon, check and recheck whether the Bible verses match your points. <laughs> Not everyone likes listening to a preachy person. Be firm, being sure of what you say. Make sure you add some dollops of humor here and there. Don't overdo it either. Your aim is not to make them laugh, but to make them think while they laugh. Um, and finally, do not sound judgmentally proud. This is a huge turnoff. So... I tried to avoid that, but we'll see how I do. Um, Overall, Bible verse matching, cherry-picking verses, being certain of what I'm saying didn't seem all that sparky to begin with. Um, So next, I turned to my family and I asked them some quick questions about what I should talk about. Um, First, I asked my Uncle Brian, who's come to church with us a few times over um, my lifetime, and he said, I think you should go the movie analogy route. Uh, Be sure you pick a good, well-known movie, don't pick some flop, and Frozen's been done. So Frozen was out. That was unfortunate. I thought that was pretty insightful, too, given that he's only been to church a few times over the last 18 years of my life. And then um, when I asked my younger brother, he simply said struggles, that I should talk about struggles. Um, So I took that to heart as well. And then finally, my dad recommended that I talk about something close to my heart, which is where I started. Um, But there are a lot of things that are close to my heart. Um, Of course, the refugee crisis, my family, my friends, uh, feminism, racial equality, education, all these things that I care really deeply about. So as I was still kind of ambling and trying to figure out what I would narrow in on, um, I finally went the English teacher route, uh, which goes with the phrase, write what you know. Um, And right now, what I know is that I'm leaving for college on August 18th, and I'm terrified. It's all I've been able to think about this summer. And to be honest, when everybody asks me, like, oh, are you so excited? It feels like a half-truth when I say, yeah, I'm so excited, because I honestly feel more dread than excitement, usually. I worry about what's going to change when I'm 3,000 miles away from home. I worry about existing and going outside, outside of the temperature range of 65 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I've cried randomly in almost every movie I've watched this summer, including movies that have no intention of making me cry, like Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, And Stacy can attest to the fact that I do not like being separated from my family, particularly my mom. Uh, This is a photo of us right before we left for Greece last summer. Um, And you can't totally tell, but my eyes are really puffy because my mom and I were just weeping at the thought of being away from each other for five weeks. Um, And that was really hard. And so thinking about leaving for, you know, five months and more is tough to think about. And it's tough to swallow. Uh, Even at the Menlo Park Art and Wine Festival a few weeks, um, I couldn't escape the thought of leaving home. We went to this booth with a batik artist, and I was chatting with him for a little bit. 
And then he showed me this series he had done in which um, he kind of chronicles the relationship with, between a parent and a child. Um, and then he pointed to the second, second image on the right and was like, this is you, and it's a child just like floating up into the air. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so terrifying. <laughs> so I thought, all right, this is everywhere. I have to talk about leaving home. But where in the Bible am I going to find anything about leaving home and going to college? Um, and as soon as I said that, I felt pretty silly uh, because it is everywhere in the Bible. Leaving is the bread and butter of what we read in the Bible. And I'm not even going to say them out loud because I could go on for the entire sermon talking about all the people who have left their homes and transitioned to a new environment in the Bible. But that was striking to me because I honestly hadn't considered uh, that what I'm experiencing is far from new. Almost everybody in all of human history has experienced some kind of transition where they leave their home. And every culture has it embedded in what it means to grow up as sort of a rite of passage. In some of the research that I was doing, I found out that if I were a teenage girl uh, in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, I would have to go um, leave my household and go join my husband's household. I probably wouldn't know him or any of the members of that family. It would probably be really far away, and I definitely wouldn't have access to Facebook, planes, or anything to contact my family. And in today's custom, in privileged and well-off communities in the United States, this looks like leaving home for college. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make it easier because it's still a new experience to me. Uh, but I did want to dive in a little bit to what it would have meant for the Israelites to leave home and what home meant to them. So I wanted to add a little bit of a disclaimer. I do not equate exile, estrangement, enslavement, or any of those things to leaving my Silicon Valley home and prep school for uh, Yale. So just wanted to throw that out there, but I do want to appreciate God's role in transition for his followers over thousands of years of history and the way it's been documented. Um, so the first story that came to mind when I was thinking about what it meant to leave home in the Bible is that of Abraham. So last year, my mom and I had the amazing privilege of taking the Garden to Garden class, uh, where you read the entire Bible in the course of five months. Highly recommend it. It was incredible. But one of the first things we learned about was the concept of the Beit Av, which means the father's household in Hebrew. Um, and the Beit Av is basically the central unit of this ancient Near East society, even more so than today, as you can see in the diagram. Um, the nation and the city or whatever greater structures there are are more at the periphery of society, and the family unit, the Beit Av, was at the center. So it wasn't an individualist society where somebody goes off and lives in an apartment by themselves for a fruit a year or two before settling down. It was always this bait of. Um, and Dr. Sandra Richter, who wrote the book Epic of Eden that we read in Garden to Garden, writes that those who found themselves without a bait of, typically the orphan and the widow, found themselves outside the society's normal circle of provision and protection. And that's why there are so many religious laws to pre protect those without a home or a bait of. So then and now, home communities really matter to humans. And another thing that Dr. Richter points out is that there are a few main features of the Beit Av. There is a leader, a patriarch. Um, there is a sense of safety. You're protected and provided for within your Beit Av. And finally, I think that there is a third feature at play in a Beit Av or family community, and that's being known. 
of course, we have to talk about what it means to be known. I think that our society, and particularly the Silicon Valley, has a much better understanding of what it means to know something or to know of someone than what it means to be known, um, especially with like, data mining and data processing, how do we store and distribute knowledge. Uh, those are questions that we talk about a lot, but we talk less about the really important heart-level knowing and what it means to be known or to know someone. Um, and that's something that I've had to think about a lot this summer because a lot of times the way that myself or my peers articulate the fear of going to college is that we won't know anybody there, and that's scary. And I think that is scary, but I also think that it masks the true fear, and the true fear is that is not that we won't know anybody, but that nobody will know us. Um, and that's an important distinction because I think we are definitely, as humans, curious about other humans, and we crave to know others. But even more than that, we crave to be known and to be understood. And the thought of losing that is really terrifying. And I think this actually uh, mirrors our relationship to God as well. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in the series The Chronicles of Narnia, uses often Aslan, the lion, as, to represent God. Um, and in this encounter between a newcomer to Narnia, uh, Eustace, and his cousin Edmund, who had been there before and met Aslan, we kind of see this play out. So Eustace asks, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? And Edmund pauses and responds, well, he knows me. And I think that that response is pretty Notable because to a reader, it would seem like, yes, Edmund does know Aslan. He's met him several times before, had many encounters with him. But the truth is, Aslan is so mysterious to them that he can never truly be known by them. And I feel that in my relationship with God. And I think that that is a reality that we all feel, that we feel super um, innately known by God. And God can expect all of our behaviors, but we'll never understand all of his mysterious behaviors and ways. Um, and I like that way of thinking about being known as um, somebody expecting behavior from you because that's the thing that I thought I would be losing as I move on to college. Um, one example is that in my class at Menlo, we, had a, we have a pretty small grade generally. Mine was even smaller than usual, so we had only 130 students. So we are, we're all pretty familiar with each other after a few years. And by the beginning of my senior year, I noticed this thing that started to happen where people would say, typical Lauren Chan, when I did something. And um, also people call me by my first and last name, but that's something I can't explain. Um, <laughs> they would say, like, oh, like, she knows the day that the essay is due. Typical Lauren Chan. Or, like, she's getting the heel of the bread at the cafeteria. That's her favorite. Typical Lauren Chan. And I had this moment this summer where I realized that when I get to college on that first day, nobody's going to say that because typical Lauren Chan doesn't exist at Yale. Um, and she might not for a year or two years or three years or maybe ever. And that thought was really terrifying to me because I think we all, I loved that feeling. I loved that feeling of somebody being like, oh, yep, that's her. I know her. And I, know, I knew that that was what she was going to do. Or even when there was like a feeling or emotion or something that was hard for me, um, like the day after the election, a lot of people came up to me and was like, I'm so sorry, like, how are you feeling? Um, and that was a really great place to be in um, with my classmates. And I think we typically acknowledge that wonderful feeling of being known in the context of a community 
like the Beit Av school, church, home, whatever you want to call it. But I th- what I had done and what I think we often do is we conflate that feeling of being known, the feeling of being known, with the state of being known. And if you are to take yourself out of this like, inner circle of Beit Av, home, school, community, whatever, are you going to be known? Um, and that's the fear source for me. But really, when I think about the bait of components that, we, that I learned about in Dr. Richter's work, the leader, being protected, and being known, all three of those are fulfilled by my relationship with God alone. And those are things that are going to follow me to Yale, even though I'm going to lose some of the more tangible things that I can see and feel and touch in my everyday life. And this is exactly what happened to Abraham. God told Abraham to do this when he says in Genesis 12:1. Go, lechlecha, from your country and your kindred and your father's house, your bait of, to the land that I will show you. Lechlecha, get up and get going. Leave the protection of your societal bait of and come be led and protected and provided for and known by me. So as I began to understand that I would still be known as I moved from the familiar to the unfamiliar, I realized that that's this is actually not the first time it's happened to me, um, this type of transition. And that's actually the story of how I found Spark. So basically from the womb until age 13, I was a part of one church, Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, um, and it was totally home to me. I had pastors, I had friends, activities, and it was a structure and a weekly habit that felt really, really natural to me. And the thing that I always thought was weird about ALCF was that everybody seemed to know me, even if I didn't think I knew them. So people would come up to me and my family after service. They'd say, oh, you've gotten so big. And I'd be like, do I know you? But you seem to know me. Um, And I also had that feeling of name shame where, like, you know you should know somebody's name, but you don't, and it's too late to ask. So you just kind of have to roll with it for the rest of the time that you know them. So... Even though I would dread those encounters sometimes at ALCF, when my family and I left, I really missed them. Because when we were church shopping, nobody knew me or even pretended to know me because there was no pretense of like, oh yeah, you're in the family, you're, you're part of this group. But luckily, Martina, who's here today, thank you Martina, invited me to Spark the summer before my sophomore year. And I was totally hooked, I loved Spark. Um, And at first, that was also a leaving of my family. I was the only person to attend for the first amount of time that I came to Spark. It was a little bit awkward at first, um, but I have my parents to thank. They were super supportive of me just choosing my own church and being able to come here by myself and kind of choose my own adventure. Um, And of course, I loved sleeping in, although I swear that was not the reason that I I chose Spark. Um, It also felt like a full circle ending to my um, time at home and in church, because, as Pastor Danielle said, she like changed my diapers when I was zero and one years old. Um, and Pastor Mark led my preschool groups at a time when I was so shy. I was so shy that nobody would have ever expected to me to be standing up here and talking to you today. Um, and what I came to appreciate about Spark was that at a certain point, it became a bait of. And in this pre- preparation for the sermon, I realized that it totally hits all those three uh, requirements of a bait of, if you will. So we have leadership. We have Pastor Danielle and Pastor Kevin actually 
think about leadership and are really intentional in the way that they lead the church, I feel. There's safety. Uh, in Garden to Garden, Pastor Daniel often says that there's safety in the questions. And I really felt that to be true at Spark. We talk about a lot of things that are politically uncomfortable or religiously uncomfortable. But even though we lean into that discomfort, it's never felt unsafe. It's always felt like it's in the context of this Spark community and we feel safe with one another. And finally, I have felt really known. So feeling known at Spark started when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, if you read the essay that I wrote for Pastor Kevin's blog two years ago, then you know what I'm talking about. But I was in a club at my school called Gender Equality Matters, um, GEM, which was just a rebranded feminist club. Um, and at the end of my sophomore year, the senior leaders of the club decided to host a pro-choice movie night to raise money for NARAL. We're going to watch the movie Obvious Child. And they actually wanted me to be the co-president of the club the following year. So, of course, I was expected to attend and then also promote the event. Um, and I was pretty overwhelmed because before then, I had always completely avoided the intersection of Christianity and feminism because, honestly, I didn't think it existed um, I thought that they were these two parallel tracks, and I was kind of hopping back and forth between each one. I was pretty new also to feminism, so I wasn't really sure what was going on. But I was like, all right, this is it. This is the end of the road. Like, something's got to give. Um, so I reached out to Pastor Danielle. She came over to Menlo Park. We met in downtown in the little park next to Pete's. And she told me all about how she went to an all-women's college, about being a female pastor and serving God um, with that identity, and all about how being Christian and being a feminist do not have to be mutually exclusive identity choices. Um, and it sounds silly now because I know so much about that intersection and about how you can be Christian and feminist and all of these other things. But at that point, I was like, wow, she knows what I'm feeling. <laughs> um, and for all I knew at that point, we were the only two people in the world who felt that. Um, but that was the feeling. She knew me and what I was experiencing um, and it was really powerful and really healing. And what I think is important to note is that it happened in that relationship. Um, and knowing happens in those kinds of relationships. More recently, I felt known at the race conversations. Uh, it's really incredible to be able to sit in a circle with Sparkers about some of our most vulnerable moments, um, some of our, our most shameful and uncomfortable moments with race, and to feel so safe and known. Um, and it's a really powerful and healing experience. So, as now I've realized, the last time that I underwent some, one, like a major transition like this, the outcome was spark, and the outcome was knowing God and being closer to God and feeling known by God and other people even more than I had before. So that's not so bad, um, but as soon as I had extricated myself from this idea that I would only be known in this fixed setting that I knew, I started getting a bunch of emails in my Yale email account from, first of all, from my pre-orientation program, Mom and Dad. I thought, that's kind of weird. Who are you? Um, but apparently, in this pre-orientation program I'm doing, I will have parents who kind of lead me through, and then I will also have seven other siblings in our family. Um, I also got a survey about matching me to a big sib in my residential college. I got an email from my peer liaison, of which I will have three in different cultural houses, 
and religious groups, and all of these structures that are in place to mimic a family unit, a bait of. Um, and I think that my new perspective doesn't make these structures unnecessary. It actually makes them more beautiful because now I can attribute that wonderful feeling, the feeling of being known, to the state of being known that is really from God. And it's also a really unique opportunity, I think, to understand that need to be known and to know that that's not just um, isolated with me. A lot of other people are going to be feeling that in this transition. And I can use this to help other, help understand what other people are going through in their transitions as well. So to close, I wanted to sort of sum up what the essence of my sermon was. Um, and if you remember Omer's sermon from a few months ago on joy, he kind of captured everything into the form of a haiku. And as I was trying to think about like a sentence or um, a phrase that would sum up what I was wanting to say in the sermon, sort of like the thesis statement. It also bizarrely happened to be a haiku. <laughs> so I'm adding to the Spark collection of haikus uh, with this. Anywhere you go, with or without a bait of, you are known by God. So that's something that I hope I'll remember in all my future transitions, not just this one, and hopefully something that is applicable to more transitions than just mine. Um, so I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I did actually reach out to more people than just my family and Google. Um, so I really want to give a huge thank you to Pastor Danielle, to Omer, and to Marcus for helping kind of lead me through the process of what it was like to speak to you all today, because um, they're the real experts. They've done this so often, and I learned a lot from their experience. And of course, before I kind of sign off, I want to thank all of you for being Spark as Pastor Daniel and Kevin often say, um, and for being a place where I've felt so known um, over these past three years of being a part of the community. Um, and thank you so much for being a place that's so good and so intimate and so wonderful that it's hard to leave, because um, not everybody has that, and I think that's really special. So, I will be around... I'm here for one more Sunday, and then I'll be back for holidays, hopefully next summer. Um, I'm always on Facebook, so just shoot me an email or a message. Um, and definitely come visit me if you're on the East Coast. I'll be a satellite sparker, so I'm so excited to see what Spark does next, even though I'll be far away. So now I'll just close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for leading us. Thank you for protecting us and providing for us. And thank you for knowing us. I pray that you would bless our fellowship tonight, our meal, and getting to know one another, really know one another in the way that you intended. Thank you so much for your presence in all the transitions of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>